This is Legal Luminaries. Join us as we delve into the inspiring stories of some of the greatest legal minds to have shaped South Africa's democracy and law. I'm Imandra Petty, your guide through the series. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Legal Luminaries podcast. Allow me, Imandra Petty, to take you on a journey illuminated by South Africa's leading legal minds, those who have trailblazed and opened the doors to a host of outstanding minds in the legal profession, and who through their own courage and wisdom and experience really indelibly shaped our justice framework. So in this podcast series, we are celebrating the achievements, uh, the reflections on their impact, and we are looking to the future in terms of the legacy that they have left. We'll be in conversation with a series of proficient legal minds in South Africa, and I'm excited for you to join us on this journey. So I'm very pleased also that today our very first guest is Judge Bernard Mahabo Nguepe, who is South Africa's former tax ombudsman, and some of you may know him if you've ever had to go down that particular path, but Chancellor of the University of South Africa, Chairperson of the Appeals Board of the South African Council for Medical Schemes, former Judge President, would you believe it, of both the North and South Gauteng High Courts, and I have his book with me on the table, recently published his debut book, Rich Pickings, Out of the Past, which is, if you read the book, it is all about Judge Bernard Nguepe's intention to make sure that we learn the lessons from the past and we don't commit repeat tragedies by not paying attention to what has gone before. And of course, it is a sermon for transformation in South Africa. So let's get straight into it. And I'm, I'm so delighted to be in conversation with you today. Thank you for the invitation. So we're going to make it fun because people could be listening to this podcast when they're doing the ironing, when they are just trying to decompress, maybe taking a long journey. So I would love for us to really do a sort of conjuring in our conversation, uh, Judge Nguepe, um, by painting some of those pictures for our audience. And I think a beautiful picture emanates from where it all began, where you yes. grew up in Limpopo, of yeah. course, in those days, Petersburg, as a young herdsman. What yeah. are you learning and imbibing from your environment and from your elders? Well, let me also start by saying that that picture you're talking about does not peculiarly belong to me alone, of course. It's proudly shared by many other people with a similar background. And I'll be happy if somebody could wake up from, from where they are and say, here I am in the rural areas. Here I am, I'm looking after cattle. Here I am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a head boy. And looking at that guy, there's no reason why I cannot be somewhere else in life. And I want them to understand that it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter where you grew up, it doesn't matter where your background is. What matters is yourself to decide to make a better life of your own self. That's where I started, that's where I came from, from those humble beginnings. Yeah, but let's go in a little bit deeper, right? Because if you are sitting there and the four walls of your existence are literally the earth, the sky, the fields, the herds, and your family, and oftentimes in those scenarios, poverty, this leap into a future of possibility that you were able to make may not be something that someone in that situation can contextualize or even contemplate. So share with us just some of those experiences that you had that made you think that the world was bigger than where you were. You know, when you grow up, you obviously are faced with certain challenges and the like. The area in, in which I grew up, there obviously there was no electricity, there was no running water. People are actually really suffering to survive. And when you attend school, you say to yourself, I want to attend school, I want to do ABCD in order to prepare for myself a better life. And challenges, those as they may be, those difficulties there, 
in a way, they inspire you. We are talking about inspiration, about things that drive you to saying, and I remember telling this to somebody else, mm. I don't want my children to come and grow up in the circumstances in which I'm growing up, where they will have to run to go and fetch water on, with a bucket on their head like my sisters did, where they will have to go and fetch water from, from the wild like my mother did and that sort of thing and so forth and so on. Or a collective of all those circumstances are the real inspiration that inspire you to say, I want to get out of this situation. Mm. Not only for myself, but for my children and, if possible, on a certain level, for other people as well. You were lucky enough to have the support of your parents and they, and they left some very important lessons for you to follow and to build on, which you've kept with you for the entirety of your life. But in that context, you also rely on the greater community as your extended family, in a sense. That perhaps is one of the missing pieces in South Africa today. It absolutely is. And I say, as I say in, in my book, there are certain values that were inculcated in us as we grew up, not only by your mother and your grandmother, your father, but by the community as well. By the way, a child was brought up by an entire community, and the entire community would participate in bringing up that child and molding that child up into a better person. And uh, they would do so as a matter of common practice, a common good. And we would all succumb to the teachings and wisdoms of people who were not our own parents, but were people, elderly people in the community, because you would know that they would not misguide you. You would know that they would teach you what was right, and so on and so forth. So it was a collective communal task to make them to be better people. And that's why I'm so delighted about the book, which, which I've read and I, I've had the privilege of having conversations with you about it is that you go into that detail and it is such an inspiration for the very point we're making that mm. you are and can be more than your circumstances. But you then embarked on this amazing uh, legal career over many years and you've made a huge impact on the legal edifice in South Africa. We always go back to the primary question. Mm. What made you want to be in the law? You know, that decision, of course, obviously... To study law obviously came late because as you grow up to primary school, high school, you don't even know that there's anything such as a lawyer, particularly if you grew up in the areas in which I did. But, well, take a step back before I answer that question. You needed to, to pass your, as they described it, junior certificate at the time, your matric at the time. And at that time, the drive is not that you want to become a lawyer because that is too distant for you and obscure. The good thing is, and I'm really talking to the young children of today, take your education seriously. Have this inspiration in you. I want to pass my grade one. I want to pass my grade three, and so on and so forth. All of those grades, each one of them is an important step in your life. It's an important milestone. Take that education seriously. Primary, secondary, high school, and then it will catapult you to another next level, which is university. Now, when you are at, at metric and the like, that's when you begin to, to see the world a little bit and you begin to say, what am I going to do beyond this? And I, that's when I decided to say, oh, well, you know, I think I want to become a lawyer. Mm. What made me that? Simple things. For example, I think when we grew up, there used to be a program on the Springbok Radio where they said they talk about adjudicating the cases and the like. And I can't remember the exact title of the program, but you you listen to that program there were people who were talking and arguing about the law, and then they would pass judgment. And I think it made me feel interested in that. But perhaps, really, the issue was bigger than that. At that time, at a certain level in life, you become conscious of the politics of the country, mm. 
That happened when we were in matric, of course. Uh, you say, in my, in my book, I mentioned a sad episode about the death of Hichaf Fervurt. I was in Form 4 at that time. And I'm, uh, it's sad. It was a sad thing to do. I look back now as an adult person. But we're at Hebron, training institution in Pretoria. You know that we did a wrong thing as students at the time. We actually celebrated the death of Fervurt. We're in matric at the time. It, it, it's not the right thing to do, but I mentioned it because I wanted to make two points, that the government at the time never really appreciated the, the death of our hatred of apartheid to the extent that we celebrated the death of somebody, of a human being, because we viewed him as a champion of a system we disliked. Now, at that time, I make that point because I want to illustrate to you that at that time I was beginning to realize the wrongfulness in the country, the, oppre- the, the oppression, the persecution of black people. And I said, well, maybe if you study law, you could help a lot of people about yeah. this. This is so interesting because it raises two things. And I had a, a running coach once who said, don't think about the 40 kilometers. Focus on the step ahead of you, especially when you're going uphill. Look down and watch your feet and, and make that distance. And that's a sermon in not understanding how the fuller picture is going to play out. Hmm. Focus on what you can do right now. And the other is just in that consciousness around the country, the sense of duty that you had to have and how that becomes triggered by our environments. It really is a call to action for anyone in any circumstance who wants to feel empowered about doing something to actually go ahead and do it, not to always lament the fact. For legal students, you know, you're fresh-eyed, you're going into university and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to study law and I'm going to make a difference, whether it be in human rights or in climate change. That journey from study to actually going to the bench and deciding to go to the bench is something I, I, I would love for you to share with us, how you make that transition. From being from from, from, from lawyer. you know when you enter into the university doors to progressing in your career and then saying oh actually I want to go on the bench. Yes, let me tell you this: when we studied law at that time, it was unthinkable for a black person to be a judge. So in truth, when I studied law, when I decided to pursue law and graduated in law, there was no discernible ambition on my part to to becoming a judge. The idea was become a lawyer go and practice law, and help people. And uh, I mentioned an incident in which I received a distinguished African-American judge who came to visit South Africa, hosted that person, well, as a practitioner. He visited the University of Zululand at the time, and he addressed students, law students at the University of Zululand at the time, and said, one other thing he said, one day when you, you are judges, they all laughed. He said, <laughs> he said to me, they laughed and laughed. And I said to people, have you lost hope? Why is it a joke that when I mention one day when you are judges, you all laugh? I'm sure I would have laughed because it was unthinkable at that time that uh, a black person could become a judge. The point I'm making is this. As a practicing law, going around practicing law as an attorney and even later as an advocate, I didn't have no ambition to be a judge. We all knew that in the then South Africa, we don't become a judge. So the idea was just to practice law, help people, ameliorate their sufferings, the, the situations and the like. The issue of becoming a judge really took us by surprise, if I may say so. Not that we lost hope for liberation, but there are some things we didn't expect to happen. Those ideas only came, say, after the, the political parties were unbent and the like, and then we're beginning to see 
we're looking forward to a new era. And that's really when we began to look forward to that. As you, I mean, we'll come back to your reflections um, overall in your career, some of the highlight moments in how it has changed you as an individual. Of course, in this conversation, we'll talk about how your contribution changed the law itself. But as you look at the court system in South Africa, and, you know, we've had a recent report on court performances and there are backlogs in certain areas. There aren't enough legal minds to be able to preside over cases. And so it leads to this really tight knot of a lingering injustice in the country. Would you say, Judge Nguepe, that there is enough support around judges to be able to execute their roles and then to make good decisions, given this high turnaround? Uh, much as I understand the financial constraints on the part of the government, I don't think that we, the judges have got enough resources to do that. They have basic resources, you know, but a lot still need to be done. For example... I would have loved for each judge to have a properly trained researcher to assist that particular judge. You would have seen in somewhere in my career that I was once a judge of an international court outside the country where for some years where I was even the deputy judge president of that court when I retired. We had facilities. We had researchers. We are assigned researchers, people who do proper work and properly qualified people who have to have their master's degrees and the like to help us with some research and the like. So we don't have, in this country, we don't have uh, resources of that nature. And Not what, only what's that. the immediate impact of that, would you say? The immediate effect, it alleviates your, your work as a judge and you assign people, you say, go and look into this. The advocate saying so raised a certain point which uh, I think is, it needs to be investigated. It has some merits. Just go and check that up. And then they come back and they draft uh, a memorandum about that particular issue. Given the workload of judges in, in this country, you need facilities such as those. Sometimes they don't even basic things. I remember at one time, I was thinking about this morning, uh, one time when I was a judge president, we ran out of stationery. We had to consider about using the reverse side of papers that had been used before. But uh, hopefully it's not that bad. But I'm just saying that Judges need some resources. Yeah, and again, on the adverse side, that would, as you say, lead to mistakes being made. I mean, that's certainly the sense that I'm getting, yeah. that if you don't have the support of that resource, you don't have the multidimensional aspect of you know, the implications or the applications for that law in other settings at your disposal, yeah. you can make judgments that could be incorrect and the wrong judgment. Absolutely, yes, yes, because you, you didn't have, not that you, you're lazy, not that you lack industry or intellect, but simply because you did not have the benefit of certain facilities available to yourself. Would you say that's a risk in our courts right now? Would you say that's happening? No, it's, it's I really, well, if, if it is there, it will be minimal, and in any event, it will be correct on appeal. But what I'm saying is that it would make your task easier the backload will be alleviated. Well, since we're talking about this now, let's talk about the higher versus the lower courts and being able to, in some cases, on matters that are taken on appeal, revise those decisions. I mean, what goes into that? I mean, what, you know, what are the mechanics of making a decision that might be contrary to a decision um, of a lower court? Let's take as an example the magistrate court, for example. Yeah. Uh, if you want, If it goes on appeal to the high court. Of course, the rule of thumb is that if a magistrate's decision has got to go on appeal to the high court, it's not one judge. It must be two judges. Just to make sure, you can't assume that a judge, one judge, one magistrate, or one, one judge vis-a-vis -vis one magistrate, one judge will always 
be right and the magistrate automatically wrong, simply because the magistrate vis-a-vis a judge. So if a magistrate judgment is being appealed against, two judges must sit in it. Just, you know, two better, two heads are better than one. And then you've got to consider it very carefully. You don't just start with the assumption that the magistrate is wrong. You've got to consider the magistrate's reasons very carefully before you overturn. You've got to be sure that you're right before mm. you overturn yeah. the magistrate's decision. I mean, this might be, you know, a silly question to ask, but I'm, I'm just curious. So, you, you know, you have this magistrate who, in all conviction, learning and experience, decided this is the route to go and this is my finding, only to have it taken on appeal and then overturned uh, by the higher court. Is there a kind of ego that happens, you know, with the magistrates? I mean, would they be upset by that, angered by that? Or do is it conventional wisdom to just accept, learn and grow from that? Is that typically what happens? It's conventional wisdom. It's part of being a professional person yeah. to accept that you, you can be wrong. Yeah. And uh, somebody may correct you. Nobody, I've said it many times, you know, as humans, we are fallible. And we will keep on making mistakes, not only magistrates, but even judges themselves. Yeah. So you have got to accept that as part of your professional ethics to accept that you can be wrong and somebody will correct you. But what I found to be uncomfortable, uncomforting to magistrates is very often the language the judges would use when they overturn a magistrate judgment. I mean, nobody has ever oh, said share with us. Do nobody, share some no, nobody would ever said that. <laughs> but I'm just demonstrating I'm using a hyperbole just to, to demonstrate yeah. the point. You can't say, oh, this mistress know nothing. I don't know which side of the road was looking. We come to this ridiculous judgment. And so you don't say that. Yeah. You actually say, this is the language we use. Uh, the learned magistrate was wrong. It may well be that this point was not well argued before him or before her. Had this point been argued as it's being argued now before us, he, he or she probably must, might have gone the other way. Yeah. That's well, true. you know, it doesn't always happen quite as respectfully and in such a <laughs> collegiate way as you are describing now. I mean, we've seen, you know, stuff go down, Judge Nguepe, in, you know, in, in our courts. I won't mention any particular yeah. cases because I don't want to draw you into the political arena, but we've seen disrespect, name calling. What's your assessment of, you know, as an experienced judge, as a trailblazer, somebody who's laid that foundation, watching this kind of bad behavior? You mean uh, non, you mean say for example by legal practitioners, legal practitioners before court, um, and the before court, actually sparring with the judges themselves. The judges seeming and there's a criminal trial that we all know. It's a very famous mm. one in South Africa where this thing actually happened. Where there, it seems to be that breakdown of disrespect. How would you? I mean, how do you view that? I don't like that. I think it's very unprofessional. I think it um, reduces the dignity. It compromises the, the dignity. Of proceedings, I don't mind mentioning in that case. For example, we talk about uh, well, advocate Tefo. Yeah, in the sense of me, yes, trial. in that yeah. case, yeah. we we are entitled to talk about it as a public issue. Yeah, uh, you know, let me step back a bit. There was a time during our time when you are an advocate, you are not allowed to make um, press statements or speak to the media about the case you are handling. Yeah. Maybe that was old-fashioned. We, we liberated ourselves from that. We thought for the good. Maybe it was for the good. I don't know. And you know there was a time in the past when media, especially the video cameras, were not allowed inside the court. You know why? At some stage, you might think this is ridiculous, but at some stage the thought was, if we do that, there will be some advocates or practitioners who are going to play 
to the cameras instead of assisting the court to administer proper justice. Yeah. I leave it at that point, and I just want people to look at some of the behavior that we see in the courts and for them to ask, how valid was that fear that at some point, if we allow the media inside court, we may just reach a point where some advocates, not all of them, where some advocates, some lawyers, may just, instead of assisting the court to come to justice, just play to the cameras. It's a very, very sobering point. Um, I'm thinking the converse in the Pretorius, uh, in the Oscar Pistorius trial, where that allowing in of that window into the court gave people the opportunity to learn how court processes work. But what you're talking about, that risk of changing the format, the delivery and the awareness of true justice can be affected by having external eyes. I think that's a very Yes, it can very be compromised. Sobering, very, very we, we, a proper point. balancing is needed. Yeah. yeah. There's so much to get through, and I'm, I'm so conscious of the clock, and I'm, I'm having such a delicious conversation with you. But I wanted to just share, since we're talking about lawyers and, and so on, what are some of the worst behavior you've seen lawyers enact in your court, a court that you were presiding over? Uh, the point that I'm making, I, I, there are instances where I became convinced that the lawyer was not assisting the court to administer justice. You know, lawyers are, we call them officers of the court. Why we call them officers of the court is because they've got this obligation to assist the court to administer justice. Now, there are instances where I became concerned that the lawyers were not actually assisting the court, but rather playing to, to the gallery. How do you and, deal with it? Well, ideally, you just report that person to the to the profession, to the legal profession, for them to deal with that person. One of the things that also concerned me as one aspect of playing to the gallery is the kind of language some lawyers use, inappropriate language which they use in court, which um, compromises the decorum. You know, I said to you earlier on that when a judge overturns the magistrate, he will say, well... The landed, the landed magistrate was yeah. wrong. And then, of course, you also hear lawyers say, my landed friend, that is meant to convey something. That is, you treat your colleague with respect. And uh, those are the things that are very important. But I've seen very often they are thrown out through the window by yeah. some practitioners, and it doesn't augur well for the profession. Talking about what doesn't all go well for the profession and how these changes have happened over time and certain behaviors and practices have become more commonplace now. We've had in South Africa this move and this awareness of the imposition of Roman Dutch law, or it's been termed as an imposition, and it has informed legal systems around the world as well. A real push in the last decade or so, or perhaps even more, gaining in volume the decolonization project. When you engage with these themes, what does the decolonization of our law mean to you? Well, I'm not worried about the terminology. I'm not going to be bothered about whether somebody talks about decolonization, whatever, and the like. You know what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is having a proper, workable judicial system or legal system. Whether we borrowed it from our ancestors or whoever or from the Dutch, whatever, the fact of the matter is that in this country, we have an existing legal system, and we can improve it one way or the other. In improving the legal system that we have, I'm not going to use the terminology, decolonize, whatever. I'm just pleading for a proper, clear, sound, 
jurisprudence and legal system. You know, last week Friday I was addressing a function arranged by the South African Law Commission. And one of the things that I spoke about was the need to reform the law. And one of the things that I mentioned, certain caveats, certain factors which we must take into account when we reform the law, when we change the law. There are certain values that we shouldn't do away with. Laws must be acceptable to the populace. Otherwise, you, if you make a law that does not reflect the hopes and expectations of the people and the values they hold dear, then that law is going to be observed more by its breach than by its observance. Yeah. So I'm just saying, this is a country where you've got so many cultures that came together and so forth. For better or worse, we decided to say we form one united South Africa with a common legal system. And we just need to have a legal system that is efficient, that is workable. And I said one of the most important characteristics of a good legal system is that it must be predictable. We all must know that if you go against a, traffic, a red traffic light, it's an offense. It's a pre predictable. I know if I'm going to do that, uh, in inevitably, if I go against that, I break the law. And I said, we mustn't have, have a legal system that changes every night. And I said, well, we mustn't have a legal system that changes like a Cape Town weather. Otherwise, you're not going to know how yeah. are you going to plan your will. Yeah. For when, when you die, you say, when I die, I want my property to go this way and so forth. You know what enables us to do that? It's because the law is predictable. Yeah. But is there room for, for innovation? And it goes back to, and I know that you want all South Africans to read the Constitution. And in fact, if we read the preamble to the Constitution, our country's priorities are summarized in there to heal the divisions of the past, to establish a democratic society, a government based on the will of the people, and to improve the quality of life of all citizens to build a united and democratic South Africa. Does this current format of the law suit that objective still? Can we innovate? It does. It does. And uh, at the same time, reminding ourselves that we are enjoined by the Constitution to develop the law and so forth and so on. I think it does. But what is, what, what is important is that we, we need to maintain the balance. We should be careful as and when we develop the law to make sure that we don't... <laughs> you know, I, I said last week, I said, we don't want to be trapped in the past by conservatism or conservative judges. But at the same time, we don't want a judge who will feel that he's so pro progressive and liberal that he feels that every Monday morning he must come with a groundbreaking judgment. No. We need to maintain to a proper balance as we develop this, the law. The law must change all the time to meet changing circumstances. But let us do it in a responsible fashion in a manner that nobody will know next month what the mm -hmm. South African law is on a particular point. We must know. I must be able to say, when I'm no longer there, I want to write my will to leave this ABCD because the law is this. But what, what happens if every 12 months the law changes? We can't have that kind of situation. We must reform the law. That's the right thing to do. But we must do it with a sense of responsibility, a sense of balancing, to make sure that we have got a dependable, predictable legal system. Nobody will come and invest in a country where yeah. they say, oh, well, in that country, the law of property changes every year. You don't know. You bring 10 million 
dollars to invest in South Africa. You think the law is like this. After three months, they say this is no longer the law and you lose your yeah. investment. I mean, certainty certainly has to be, certainty, I suppose, yeah. of process yeah. is where that dependency for the pursuit of justice probably also just hinges on. We're coming Towards the end of our conversation, I cannot believe how time has evaporated because there are so many more questions I would have wanted to ask you. But you have made an indelible impact on our law, and part of this conversation is about that impact. You spoke about the law, even though it is structural and architectural, it is organic in a way. It will change and move with the times as is necessary. What impacts would you say rank amongst the changes that you have made to South African law the, the mark that you have left behind as legacy? Yeah, well, as an introductory sentence, I should say to you, uh, <laughs> perhaps it's not for me to, to audit yes, myself. I, <laughs> people will do that. But, but, but I need to mention some of these things because it was not for nothing that I agreed to be a judge. It was not for nothing that I decided to abandon my status as senior counsel to enjoy practicing law as senior counsel and make some bit of money that I decided to go... To, to agree to be a judge. I felt there was a need to go there. I felt there was a need to go and make a contribution to try and change the face of the judiciary. Well, the credibility, there's nothing more important than the credibility of a judicial system. You may have good law, the best law, best constitution. But if that, that good law and that good constitution is being administered by a judiciary that lacks credibility, you have nothing on your table. So the, the credibility of the judiciary is very important. That's one of the reasons why I went to the bench, to give it a black face as well. Later, to give it more and more black faces when I decided to become the judge president. I decided to go there to become the judge president because I had certain certain things in mind. I went, if you read my book, you, you'll see how I was tortured during the interview because at that time it was... Not acceptable that as a black person, I should become a judge president. They wanted some people who had been judges president for years to continue to be judges president. But there was a reason for that. And the reason was, by the way, I was the only one, one I was one black judge at the time in Pretoria and Joburg. I think there was only one, one other black judge when I was interviewed for the position of judge president. And I was one of those people who felt, no, we must change the face of the judiciary. Otherwise, it won't be credible. And I, Became, that's why I decided to become judge president, in the course of which I tried to bring in as many black faces and women as possible. There was not a single woman in woman judge, white or black. After some time, having been judge president for some time and tried to recruit people, train people, bring the black faces and women, I reached a point where more than 50% of the judges in Pretoria and Joburg were black. And I said, to people, I've achieved my objective yeah. and uh, I'm leaving. I have not reached compulsory retirement, but my objective to become Judge President has been achieved. I, I've brought in more than 50% are black, so That's what is there something. for me to do? Yeah. And I decided to leave. They thought I wouldn't, and I left. Certainly the, point is, to be proud of. the point is, you change the law and the credibility of the law and judicial system. That's what I thought by making the judiciary reflect the composition of our country. Yeah. And if I were to put some modesty aside, 
Please and, do. And you repeat the question to me, what do you, or contribution do you think you have made? I would say, this is the contribution that I made by changing the face of the judiciary in the area. Any judgments in present. particular that you would like to, would like to share as highlight accomplishments for yourself? Uh, not too many because, well, uh, most of the time as judge president, you don't sit in court. There are certain things that just preoccupy you. But there was one case which was about eviction. Not eviction as such. Actually, the farmer was refusing a family to bury a dead member of their, of their family on a farm where there are about two other, other graves. And they didn't succeed. They went to the high court. They, they failed. And the matter came on appeal still in the high court for, before the full bench. I sat in that case myself as judge president with two other judges. And uh, those two other judges were not of the same color with me. And maybe that, I don't know, it could have affected maybe the way they saw things for the better. They saw things better than I, I saw them. And I, I, my view was that they must be entitled to bury that person because they had a belief, their own traditional belief that this person, in terms of their religious belief, must rest there mm. with the, the, the other families. It didn't weigh enough with the other judges. They said no. And I said, no, 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 no. In my view, I'm weighing these. This guy has got a farm of so many hectares, and this grave is just one meter by two meters. That's not going to damage his right of ownership of property that much. I said, no, they, they must be allowed to do that. But I lost because I was the minority. But later on, I understand. I don't know the details. I think the government, I think they might have read my minority judgment and changed the law a bit, improved the law to bring a little bit more in line with my minority judgment. And then we had a lot of, a number of cases about people wanting to bury on the farm, that sort of thing. And I think if I didn't persuade too many people, if I didn't influence legislation in that direction, then at least I brought the topic to discussion. Is there anything you regret about the way that your career evolved and some of the choices that you made? Uh, I think maybe in some instances I feel maybe I could have been more robust and but then I was constrained because of the judge president. But sometimes I would feel man, I could sit in a case. If I wish I could have time to sit in a case, but then I wouldn't. And I'm sorry that I couldn't sit in that case. I remember at one time I decided as the judge president to say, I'm going to on circuit. You know, you go on circuit, you yeah. go to Palabora and the like yeah. and so forth. And I said, I'm going on circuit as the judge president. Because there are people in Polokwani, people in Palabora, they had never seen a black judge. And I said, I'm going to allocate myself as a black judge to go on circuit so that people who have never seen a black judge should do so. You know, there are people who were dying to, to see a black judge in their lifetime. Like, you know, the story of people read the Bible say, there was the story of this old man, Simeon, who said, after seeing Jesus Christ, he said, Lord, you can let me, you can let me die now because I've seen the Messiah. <laughs> so I said, well, there were too many people in this country who, we're yeah. eager just to see a black child. And they need to see themselves reflected in justice. Yes. You know? and, and, and I said to them, if they could just, those old people and women out in the rural areas, if they could see a black judge, they would say, now we can die. We are happy we have seen a black judge in this country. Yeah. I wish I could have divided myself into many judges. I could be everywhere. Well, you know, when Mama Winnie Madikizela Mandela died, they, say, they said, you know, she didn't die, she multiplied. And I think you didn't serve 
You didn't only serve. You've multiplied in a sense. And that's kind of the note that I want to leave our, yeah. our little chat on. And okay. again, I just can't believe it's over. I yeah. haven't even asked you half the things I've wanted yeah. to is this delicious prospect. I and mean, some people might not see it as a delicious prospect because it's so arduous. There's many years of study involved. There's some of the powerlessness, I think, that you felt that a lot of them might still feel in entering the profession. But if you were to issue a rousing call for more people to follow, not only in your footsteps, but in other judges who we're going to be interviewing in the series, to do something about our legal justice system and to make it more accessible and to allow people to feel as if this is going to be the final arbiter and they have recourse in a society where so many feel so helpless. What would you say, what would you share with those those young minds in pursuing this profession and pursuing this path? Two people who read my book came back to say, had I read this book while I was younger, I'd probably have been a better person now. And I think that um, people uh, should say to themselves that nothing should really stop me from becoming what I, what I want to become. There are serious challenges, but those challenges perhaps need to be there in order to enable us as humans to learn the ability to dig deep, to realize that, in fact, we do have some depth. Let them exist, those obstacles. They, I'm, I'm saying to them, you'll find some challenges, you'll find some obstacles, but let them not deter you from doing what you want to become. And I said, well, at some point I thought, when I decided to take a particular direction, I created an alternative way in case I failed. I said, perhaps I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have created plan B, you know. Just have plan A and say, well, plan A is plan A. I'm going to succeed. Why should I even have plan B? Just have plan A and feel driven to achieve what I want to achieve. And let nothing stop you. So as the young people do, let's first pump. Sure. <laughs> Thank you for, for talking you to us much. today. And, you know, you've mentioned your book a few times, and I really think it is it is such a wonderful resource yeah. to go back and look at even the unexpected support that you received from your white legal counterparts. Well, they weren't yeah. your legal counterparts at the time. They were your superiors yeah. in those law firms. And just this really interesting, complicated, in some places really painful journey that you went on to become who you are and to have left the legacy that you have left in South Africa. We thank you on behalf of our audience for your service, Judge Nguepe. You've left an indelible mark on the legal landscape in South Africa. Thank you for being a constant voice of guidance, uh, a voice of sanity and reason in times where things seem so dark, both literally and philosophically. So we really just want to appreciate you today. Thank you much. And I, I hope the, the young people and perhaps even not the so not so young people who happen to have the time to look through that book. I hope they'll find some things which uh, they'll find useful. And uh, I felt that I should speak, look to the past for the reason that I believe the, the past is a solid guidance because nobody can change the past. I use the past as a point of reference because I know that you can never change the past. And that is why my book reflects on the past. It reflects on something that none of us can change. But as a lodestar to what we can do to alter a repeat exactly. of that reality in future. Yes. Always fascinating Thank talking you. to you and I hope that our paths cross again. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Legal Luminaries, a Jackpot original podcast. 
by Juta and Jacaranda FM. I'm Imandra Petty. Find more episodes at jacarandafm.com. Just click on Jackpot.